And at the end of the day, there's no destination. It's a lifelong process of becoming. And that's where the art is. The art is the life. friends, welcome to another episode of Inside the Creative Process. I'm your host, Alicia Peterson-Baskell. Thank you so much for being here. I am really excited to share another incredibly thoughtful artist with you. But before I do, I wanted to invite you to join me for one of my Monday morning group breathwork sessions. Throughout the conversation today, you'll hear Kelly talk extensively about energy and viewing ourselves as human circuits. When we can see ourselves this way, we can see how important it is to take care of our own circuit board. Breathwork has become my favorite tool for providing that kind of care and creative channel for myself, which is why I found it so important to become a facilitator and share it with other creatives. If you wanna join me, I offer Monday morning group breathwork every other week. You can sign up at the link in the show notes or visit me on Instagram, Alicia Peterson Baskell. I would love to have you there and to share this powerful tool of breathwork meditation with you. I'm really excited to introduce you to Kelly Heaton. My friend Daphne reached out to me and said, you need to talk with my friend Kelly. And I'm so glad I did. This conversation blew my mind. Kelly Heaton is a cross-disciplinary artist, engineer, and visionary who works with electricity. She is an intuitive artist who seeks beauty and meaning in circuits. She is fascinated by what makes things alive and conscious. Heaton's art has been featured in exhibitions in the United States and internationally, including the De Cordova Sculpture Park and Museum, Ronald Feldman Fine Arts, and Bitforms Gallery. She is the recipient of grants from the Peter S. Reed Foundation, Creative Capital, LEF Foundation, Council for the Arts at MIT, and the Jacob K. Javits Fellowship Program, among many other awards and residencies. She is a graduate of Yale and the MIT Media Laboratory. Her work, Circuit Garden, which we will talk about in our conversation, is on display through the end of this week. So if you happen to be in Brooklyn, you can go experience Circuit Garden in the lobby of 15 Metro Tech through April 28th. Please welcome intuitive artist, Kelly Heaton. Welcome, Kelly Heaton. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I cannot wait to dive into your work. It is so inspiring and for me, unusual. It's such a cool combination. You are an electrical engineer and an intuitive artist. I mean, truthfully, I, you could really just say that I'm an intuitive artist, but I add electrical engineer because that's my medium and also because it's the only way I know to communicate even remotely what I do to people. The truth is that I don't really consider myself an engineer. Hopefully by the end of my career, I won't have to explain myself quite so aggressively, <laughs> but well, you're talking to artists here. So we are yeah. with you in the, we get it, we get it, we get it. And the intuitive part, we get it. We get it. Yeah. Thank you for getting it. 
I am curious though, about what brought you to art. I see in your education that you got your BA in art at Yale, and then you went on to get your master's in science. So, so there was no quote unquote, bringing me to art. I was born. <laughs> I was born that way. I think many artists uh, would agree with that statement. I have identified as an artist since my earliest memories. I also very strongly identify with nature, being in the wilderness. I grew up in North Carolina, surrounded by woods and spent many, many hours, days, weeks, years mm-hmm. roaming the woods and interacting with nature, observing nature. When I went to college at Yale, I came in again, very much thinking that I would focus on art. And while my bachelor is technically of arts, like a BA, I actually was not able to major. Well, no, I shouldn't say wasn't able. That's wrong. (laughs) I decided not to get my bachelor of arts in fine art because I wanted to make a kind of art that didn't yet exist, or at least it didn't exist in the academic environment. So to put it in a nutshell, I got really frustrated with the traditional fine arts education I was receiving because it was very focused on, you know, representational painting and the style of Rembrandt and you know, figure studies with correct proportions. And all of that is extremely important training for an artist. So what I railed against, I also needed and still rely on to this day. However, I really wanted to look at nature as a system. And I wanted to make art about that sort of nebulous living dynamic system. But I didn't know what that meant. And, you know, Yale University, at least when I was there, is not the kind of place to be like, wow, I don't really know what I want to study. I don't have language for it. And you don't have a degree in it. And, you know, I mean, it just you can't do that. Right. I mean, I guess in a way, I mean, that's kind of the curse of being really creative. Right. Is that you find yourself drawn to express something that you don't have language for. And because you don't have language for it, you don't know how to ask for it. I mean, don't you think this is a curse of a lot of kids who are artists, right? They they want a kind of training that no one is offering freely. So you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. And yet you're like, yeah, that's not really what I mean by art, right? I don't want to make art like somebody else did. I, I have this other idea, but I can't tell you what it is. And I don't know how to forge it, Right. Yeah. So it took me a very long time bouncing back and forth between fine art and science. Science, I put in parentheses because, or quotations, because um, science was the only way I knew how to say, hey, I love nature and I really want to study it. Is that really science? I would say no. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you can't go to university and get a degree in observing nature. I actually did try, well, I ended up designing my own, my own major. And uh, that was like a bricolage process of whatever I could get professors to sign up for. Essentially, I wanted to be an ecology major who made art, but, you know, I had to come up with something a little bit more practical than that. I 
thought, well, maybe I need to go be a veterinarian because then I can work with nature. And I don't know about the art piece, but I was making art in the evening. Actually, at some point and pursuing veterinary studies realized, yeah, you know, this isn't working because you're not, you can't be creative in the medical field, not creative mm-hmm. in the way I'm creative. That's unethical, mm-hmm. right? You know, and I wasn't interested in, in animal experimentation because it felt spiritually very wrong. So I went from veterinary school back to art school and did that for a year, but back in art school, nobody was really talking about science or nature. And at this point, I was really a hybrid of the two. So I had a a man who uh, occupied the office next to me in the building where my art studio was. This was in Boston at this point in the late 90s. And he was a roboticist named Kevin Brown, who had gotten his PhD from MIT and said, you know, you should really go to MIT. And I thought that was the most ludicrous suggestion because I didn't have an engineering background. I never thought of myself as being good at math. I certainly, I wasn't a computer scientist or programmer. In fact, I really wasn't particularly interested in technology, to be honest with you. So this, at this point, the story gets really crazy. So he said, I want to introduce you to someone a guy named Gus who owns Toscanini's ice cream in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we went after Toscanini's closed one night and sat down, Kevin, Gus, and me. And Gus, as it turns out, was the watering hole of Cambridge, Massachusetts, of Central or uh, Kendall Square, I guess it was and knew a lot of MIT Media Lab professors. And I don't know, it was just one of those crazy things when you're sitting there incredulous watching these two people discuss your future thinking, this just can't be real because I'll never get into MIT. But somehow they thought differently. And Gus contacted a friend of his named Michael Hawley, who uh, unfortunately is uh, deceased now. He passed away a couple of years ago, but Michael Hawley was a Yale graduate and pianist and nature lover and engineer and just all around wacky, eccentric, creative guy. Gus arranged for me to meet Michael Hawley on a park bench in front of the media lab. And I remember Michael Hawley saying to me, we had a long conversation about this back and forth science art split personality (laughs) that I had going on. He said, well, are you allergic to technology? And I said, well, no, I'm not, I'm not allergic to it. I mean, I don't know anything about engineering or computer science, but I'm not, no, I'm not allergic to it. And he said, okay, I want you to go in and find my secretary and tell her that you will be in my uh, class of graduate students starting this fall, um, which was like two months from then. So I dropped out of my Master of Fine Arts program and matriculated at the MIT Media Laboratory as a student of Michael Hawley in the fall of 1998. And It wasn't until later in the semester that I actually submitted my application to MIT. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. They just saw it. 
I guess sometimes people see things in you that you yourself don't see. And that's such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. What were you talking about that made him recognize that this artist needs this information that, that he had? So I actually never went to veterinary school. I took all of my pre-veterinary requirements. And one of the classes I took at North Carolina State University to catch up, basically to be eligible to apply to veterinary school was organic chemistry. And organic chemistry was taught by, and unfortunately, I'm not going to remember his name, but it was a professor at NC State, and he was just wonderful. And he anthropomorphized all of the molecules and the elements. And so for the first time in my life, I was really engaged with learning chemistry because I thought of oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and bonds. Like I thought of them as having personality, like literally being attracted to each other. And, you know, as for somebody in your twenties, who's young and vibrant and sexually attracted to people, I was like, that's a language I can speak. <laughs> and so I learned organic chemistry by thinking about the periodic chart as being all of these character, these cast of characters, like in some sort of sex in the city you know, <laughs> show, having relationships with each other. And uh, suffice it to say, like organic chemistry really stuck in my, in my subconscious and was like a great source of inspiration. So I was actually accepted into veterinary school, which I declined uh, because that was the point where I ended up transferring and going to my master of fine arts. But the paintings that I was making, so that was my background, by the way, I was a 2D artist. Primarily, I was I was a painter is how I thought of myself. The paintings that I was making were metaphors for human events like wars or uh, disease or, you know, whatever, relationships, marriage. And they all used chemistry and other, and physics to describe these human relationships. So for example, I would make a painting of the War of the Roses as a metaphor for human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Or I would make molecules having sex with each other as a metaphor for human attraction, like what makes us attracted to each other. And I would even go so far as to say that, you know, because we are, what is it, like 80 or 90% water, that the bonding properties of the attraction, like the hydrophilic attraction in water molecules, of course it applies to the human body, right? How could we it know that? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so that's what I was doing. And I, I actually got a Jacob Javits fellowship for this kind of work, mixing art and science. It wasn't as though I was just, you know, randomly like a dilettante out of the blue talking about art and science. I was actually doing it at the time. I was making visual art using metaphors that combined human relatable uh, events and experiences with the language of chemistry and physics. And that was what I described to Michael Hawley. And I guess he thought it was pretty cool. It is really cool. And then electricity comes into the picture and you talk about, we are electrical beings connected in a universal system. And as a, 
Universal circuit. circuit. Universal yeah. circuit. I wrote that incorrectly. No, no, no. It's okay. It's just that I really, I really would like to introduce circuits as a symbol that everyone can own in the human collective, a symbol of archetypal power that represents who we are as a culture with technology, with electricity and electronics. I don't like the fact that many people are relegated to the role of consumers of electricity and don't really have any understanding of how it works or feel like they have creative agency. Part of my work is to open my heart and my knowledge to as many people as I possibly can to help people feel like active participants in the age of electricity, basically (laughs) the most important media of our time and something that I feel is truly dangerous if left only in the hands of experts and corporations. I don't want um, artists to not be able to make art with the fundamentals of electricity and ideas about how electricity works and what it means. I furthermore think that we need more archetypes in our collective consciousness to represent the evolution of our creativity as humans, because electricity is transforming us so profoundly. So circuits are something that I really want people to resonate with as being a symbol, a concept that everyone can own. You don't have to be an engineer to really own what it means, you know, a circuit being like an instrument through which energy flows. It's it's like a magical device, really. Yeah. And I can feel that as a, as a dancer, as a breathwork person who is dealing with the energy inside my body, the electricity inside of my body that I can actually feel. I can actually feel it when I give myself the opportunity to feel it. I mean, people talk about it and they think it's woo woo, but it's not, it's science. It's It's true. It's, it's not at all woo-woo. In fact, science describes it in great detail. I don't fully understand why it has been dismissed as woo-woo when if you look at scientific literature, it's very clearly described. I think that occultists, practitioners of witchcraft, Wicca, magic, shamanism, uh, energy healers, Reiki, you know, you name it, whatever. All, All of these people who have an intuitive understanding and relationship with energy and know that it's real dancers, somehow science has put up this very hard wall. Like if you don't follow our rules of evidence based experimentation, and peer-reviewed scientific journal publication, clinical trial demonstration, you can't even have a seat at the table. I mean, how much possibility, opportunity, discovery are we missing through that rigid rule set? Now, I think it is very dangerous for charlatans to peddle cures or insights or pseudoscientific claims that aren't true 
I think that's misinformation and manipulative, like any false claim, no matter what the origin. But to say that all intuitives who are working in the broad domain of energy, understanding the flow of energy and imagining the energy within the human body and how that relates to the world outside as this living circuit in which we are all consciously connected. I think to exclude that categorically because it doesn't follow scientific method is preventing humanity from progressing in our understanding of the nature of reality. Wow. I am right with you there. And I love that your art is going about shifting that perspective from the perspective of looking at circuits. Right. The flower of life. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me about the flower of life? I thought that was such a beautiful process and it has so many different products that have come out of it, right? Or pieces of art. Tell me about that. Well, so the flower of life is a sacred geometry, right? It's an ancient sacred geometry and a very, very powerful one that crosses many different cultures and time periods. In essence, the flower of life as a sacred geometry talks about that universal source from which all things come. Embedded actually in the symbol of the flower of life is the Kabbalistic tree of life. In other words, the flower of life essentially represents the ever creating universe, right? It's like a template for all that is. In a way, you could think of that as a cosmic diagram. So I took that incredibly powerful sacred geometry and pushed it into the form of a circuit, but not only the form of an industrially manufactured circuit. That's where I started. Okay, let me step back for a second and say that many of the circuits that I make, I definitely consider them full stop legitimate works of art that are created with a a circuit board printmaking process where I design the circuit I design the layered manufacturing files and I send those files to an industrial partner, in my case in Shenzhen, China, who manufactures the circuit according to my specifications and ships it to me. And if you look at my Flower of Life crystal grid, that's what you're looking at is, and in fact, I also posted as part of the project, a video that the factory I work with in Shenzhen helped me to create that documents how they made the circuit. Because even though I'm working with an industrial partner, they too are artists. They are wonderful craftspeople, artisans, um, and how circuits are printed. It's, It's a fabulous craft and wonderful to know how they do it. So once I got the original industrially manufactured printed circuit board and wired it up and confirmed that it worked, at that point, I wanted to push it further and to have a more human relationship with it. So my first engagement was to use it as a crystal grid for setting intention because the vibration that's generated by the flower of life circuit is really marvelous. So 
there are oscillators, analog electronic oscillators that generate vibration in the circuit and they're sound responsive. So it's this wonderful, like meshy experience of vibration where you can talk or chant to the circuit and watch the lights vibrate in response. And then the activation of the crystals is just, I mean, unfortunately in a podcast, I can't explain to you the palpable experience of that vibration being in the presence of it, but it generates a palpable electromagnetic field. It's a really interesting thing. From there, from that engagement, I moved on to etching my own version of the flower of life uh, by laminating copper onto paper and using an etchant, ferric chloride, So very carefully with gloves and a mask, um, I used a small amount of ferric chloride to rub away all the parts of the design that shouldn't have any copper. And that process made a very beautiful physical experience of circuit board printmaking, if you will, because you can see the staining of the etchant and the paper, and you can see where my etching isn't perfect. And there's just so many things about it that are really, it's the flaws that make that particular piece so incredibly beautiful. So I guess it was, for me, it was part like the humility of wanting to bring something so highly technological back to earth and back to hand and to make it really, really deeply human and also to express or to reveal my own kind of mortal limitations as a maker, contrasting that with the incredibly perfect product that a factory in China is capable of making and just how small and insignificant that can make me and I think many others feel in the face of electronic technology. Like electronic technology really has come to the point where it's a form of modern magic and that is marvelous, but can also feel very isolating to think that humans are capable of making things of such tremendous sophistication that on some level, the makers, the human makers themselves are godlike. It's an interesting paradigm shift that humanity has undergone really in the last 100, maybe 150 years since the Industrial Revolution that the intelligence or the ingenuity and combined intelligence that comes together in an industrial enterprise like Apple is just godlike. And as an artist who works with electricity, I like to recognize like the full sort of auric spectrum of electricity as a creative medium from this very extreme, expansive, unfathomably complex, and yet human authored creation, godlike creation that like an Apple computer represents or like this Zoom call represents. <sighs> That all the way back to the humility of gluing a piece of copper flashing to a piece of paper and rubbing it by hand to try to make a circuit 
that is beautiful as a drawing, but fails to function. I really love imagining and imaging the expansiveness of the human aura. And I think that in order to really grasp that power, you've got to go very high and very low. And when I say low, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it in the sense of the root chakra, grounding, um, and humility is a big part of that. Grief, you know, these are places of tremendous human power. And interestingly, an aspect of human intelligence that technology doesn't really enter. You know, there's a lot of discussion today about the implications of artificial intelligence. And um, I think that while artificial intelligence is guaranteed to develop a form of sentience, it knows nothing of the lower chakra experiences that humans are experts of defining, right? Yeah. And traversing. That's such an interesting take on that, that I haven't heard yet. And it reflects right back to those prints that you, that you made that were imperfect. That's what you were looking for, right? You were looking to get deeper and deeper into the humanity of this circuit of this circuit board. Well, think about when you're choreographing a dance It's not the specific moves or position of your body or the color of your skin or your gender that is what you are trying to present to your audience. You are creating an an experience of presence and of energy, right? Absolutely. You understand that kind of work. Right. And so my flower of life, the artifact is an instrument for the creation of an experience that has its own energy body. It's the energy body. That's what, what's important. In fact, all of my art is really like that. So, you know, I make instruments or sort of magical artifacts that produce an experience of energy that incite narrative. I wish I could sit with one of your flowers of life and feel that resonance that you're talking about. I, it makes I'm working me on that. Ooh. I'm working on that. I I started developing a brand. It's called Circuit Icon. The tagline is helping the world be one. <laughs> I love it. So, so helping the world be a circuit icon, right? In the sense that like recognizing that we're all connected, uh, but also of course, helping the world be one, unifying us, bringing yeah. us back together in this magnificent circuit that we already are, but, you know, honoring that. So so <clears throat> it's happening, but right now it's just me. So needless to say, it, it takes a little while and you're trying to do everything all by yourself, but uh, circuit icon will be the brand through which I produce select uh, works of electronic art that are not editioned or signed, but therefore more affordable maybe not my original flower of life, but something like that uh, will one day soon be available for purchase. I don't know if you've seen my tree of life circuit. That's also kind of something I'm working on adapting so that more people can have access to these electronic works of art that I'm describing. That's wonderful. That's amazing. Because of the interaction with it, right? Because these circuits are responding to their environment. So they're yes. responding to me. They're responding to the crystals. They're responding to the yes. sounds. And in that, I can 
understand that this is a, a living board. This is yes alive. Right. And that, yes. and, and that again, takes me to everything. I go in my head and I go to dance and my relationship to my audience and knowing that that's alive or yes. a work of art that I'm standing in front of that seems to have been made in the past, but there's some aliveness to my experience of witnessing a hundred work of art. That's why I talk about my work in terms of electronic naturalism, um, because circuits are very much alive electrically in the same way that humans are, that plants are, that everything is. That electrical flow and distribution of charge and creation of electromagnetic fields uh, and propagation of waveforms, this is the nature of our universe that we inhabit. And so there are different forms of electrically actuated or transmuting entities, but fundamentally, you know, the, the DNA of a human is just an exquisite architecture for a circuit that conducts electricity. I mean, what do you think's going on inside of your brain? Right. Right. A lot of electrical activity that results in brain waves that result in, I'm going to say a participation in consciousness because I do not believe that consciousness is exclusively um, contained within the brain. I think that the brain is uh, participating in a much larger consciousness in which we are all enmeshed. And that reflects all of your work and, and the way that you talk about your work. I can hear that. And you talked about just briefly electronic naturalism is an overarching theme throughout your work, but it's also a specific theme. Is that right? Can you talk about the birds and maybe the circuit garden and how the external visualization of your art is looking like nature and sounding like nature? Yeah, so electronic naturalism is a phrase that I coined to reference historic naturalism in the style of, of Audubon. So Audubon made illustrations of birds for the purposes of deeply knowing the birds. In my case, I make circuits that I put also into representational images and or sculptures to deeply know the electrical or spiritual nature of the birds. It's a mm -hmm. similar practice, hence I'm just extending naturalism with the adjective electronic. So it's a practice as opposed to a body of work per se. So electronic naturalism would be a way in which you could look at any living electrical and or machine intelligent entity and deeply know it through understanding the circuit that it is. So I would argue that acupuncture is a form of electronic naturalism. Okay. Right? Because it's the study of the human body as a circuit. Yeah. Very literally. Yeah. Neurology is electronic naturalism. Uh, EKG, MRI, those are all forms of electronic naturalism. When you're trying to deeply see and understand the nature of 
something, but through the lens of its electrical anatomy. So uh, circuit garden. Circuit garden is um it contains obviously electronic naturalism in the form of many of my bird, but so by the way, my birds are circuits that generate bird song. So there's no, there's no code and there's no recordings. They, the circuits are vibrating. Uh, you can think of them almost like musical instruments. They're electronic musical instruments. So as opposed to a guitar where you pluck a string and it vibrates, in this case, I switch the power on and the circuit vibrates in response to the power. And how did you how did you discover that they could make this bird sound? Did you go after that sound hoping for it or did you discover it? You know, that's a big rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> uh, I will try to summarize uh, briefly. I started working on electronic naturalism in 2005 because I had the intuition at that time that circuits were lifelike. And I could see electricity flowing through nature everywhere all around me. I was already a great appreciator of practices such as acupuncture. And I wanted to build circuits that represented what I was seeing in my environment. Although I went to MIT, as I told you previously, I didn't come in with an engineering background. So when I was at MIT, I did learning literally from the fire hose is very appropriate in that situation. <laughs> and I had to massively collaborate in order to survive. So the work that I made when I was at MIT and shortly thereafter was done through collaboration with true engineers. And I was truly at that point, an artistic director when I left MIT, I no longer had access to these marvelous engineers who helped me to create my art. And I found myself sitting in front of my electronics workbench, trying to learn how to make circuits that had artistic and philosophical properties. Technically, it took me seven years to develop my first body of work based on this practice uh, that culminated in a show called The Parallel Series. And there are actually two bird-like circuits in that body of work, but they're extremely primitive. And to answer your question, did it happen intentionally or by accident? The intention was there very much so in terms of my desire to create circuits with lifelike or natural properties. My ability to control the outcome was like, you know, literally just like trying to manage controlled chaos, basically. Like I, I would look on the internet and ask everyone I knew for circuits that had qualities, anything remotely like what I was hoping to create. As you can imagine, I got a lot of blank stares. Like you want to do what? It made it very, very difficult. I couldn't go to engineers and say, can you give me a schematic for a circuit that sings like a bird or chirps like a cricket? You know, like, what are you talking about? They just, it wasn't in their lexicon. Now it turns out I discovered later that many of these circuits do exist. The problem is that they're, hidden in obscurity, finding them requires that you understand the language of electrical engineering well enough to even know what to search for. 
And not to mention the fact that you have to learn how to read a schematic, uh, which doesn't just happen overnight. It's like learning uh, German or something, you know, it takes a while. Oh, and the, well, the other thing I'll add is that if you look at my work from the parallel series, you'll see that there's like layers and layers of, of circuits, like with what I thought of as vestigial organs and broken elements, like detritus of, you know, aspects that I would build and they would fail because I didn't, when things would work, I wouldn't know why mm. I would try very hard to study them and write down exactly what I did, but 50% of the time or more, I wouldn't accurately record the circuit because I didn't understand electronics well enough to, to know what I was, you know what I mean? Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It was, and it, it like gives me a headache even thinking about it. It was so hard to teach myself analog electrical engineering. And, and by the way, I went in the direction of analog because in 2003, when I no longer had access to engineers uh, to support me in my practice, actually it happened even earlier, more like 2001 or two. At that time, if you wanted to program a microprocessor, it was a pretty involved process. There, there were not kits available like there are, are today. So now you can buy something called an Arduino, which has like a very robust user interface that you can easily load on your computer and program and use a USB cable and load the code onto the microprocessor. It's really not that hard to do now. Back when I was coming along, that didn't exist. It was in development. And so that was one reason I went in the direction of analog. The second reason, analog meaning no code, right? Just the yeah. vibrating electronics. Yeah. Uh, the second reason was that I really wanted to look at the like physicality of the electronics as a sculptural medium, mm -hmm. which we see but, in your work. Yes, you do. But it's been a hard road because most electronic artists work with digital. And in fact, it's gotten to the point where when I call myself an electronic artist and say I do analog, people are like, they don't even know what the, what, what I'm talking about. The people who do know what I'm talking about think it's like anachronistic and old fashioned. When I talk about artificial intelligence in the context of an analog electronic circuit, people are like, what are you talking about? Artificial intelligence is software. No, it is not software, right? It's an intelligent architecture, machine architecture that gives forth electronic behaviors with intelligent properties. And circuits can do that too. And in fact, I'm not the first person to know this. There are other people. Uh, William Gray Walter made these uh, robotic tortoises back in the late 1940s. And at the time, people kind of ignored him too, unfortunately. But anyway, but hopefully people will circle back around to seeing that the hardware, the analog electronic hardware can itself have emergent behaviors. All of that being said, it wasn't until 2018, after I had kind of mastered the art of making crickets, and I had finally figured out how to sequence them. Uh, this was all part of my Hacking Nature's Musician project, which is web archived on Hackaday. I remember saying to myself at that time, now, if I could only make a circuit sing like a bird then I'd really have something. And I also truly believe that if I could make a circuit sing like a bird, that the whole world would love me. 
<laughs> you know, it's some like, oh, finally, then like everyone will understand me. It will be great. And I won't have to explain myself anymore. Well, that did not happen. <laughs> In fact, once I made circuit sing like a bird, it was even worse because everyone just assumes that it's software or that I recorded it. I'm like, no, it's so intriguing because I highly value that digging down to the essential, to the physical, to, you know, the fact that the circuit itself is what is creating the sound, but you have to say it, right. You have to say it so that we fully understand and can appreciate what's happening. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want people to know circuits, like to have a relationship with machine intelligence at the root level. That's the reason I made circuit garden. So the uh, playful plush electronic components that are in that form the garden, they are representations of electronic devices scaled up to, you know, human size so that you can walk right up to it and be like, wow, this is like a living, breathing garden. Like I wanted to make that comparison. Also, of course, as a cautionary note that mother nature is so magnificent that I couldn't possibly rebuild anything remotely as amazing as nature. But, but, you know, the effort though, is what promotes the dialogue. There is one more thing though I should say about my journey to make circuits that can sing like a bird, which is that in some kind of cruel twist of fate, as soon as I developed enough skill as an electrical engineer that I was able to find the circuit elements that could make the circuit sing like a bird, this is about 2018, that was also the same time that I realized, oh my God, I have just reinvented analog electronic synthesizers. Basically, the kind of synthesizers that Moog or Buchla made at the dawn of electronic music in the 1960s, okay, Those guys were geniuses and they could make circuits, make any sound you can imagine. My birds, by comparison to those early analog electronic synthesizers, are a joke. Like they're so simple. The thing that I did that was different is that had I known 20 years prior what analog electronic synthesizers were or how to engage with them, I probably would not have been the same person to develop this profoundly intimate relationship with circuits as living creatures, you know, to see their nature in that way, because I would have been too technically skilled and I would have just jumped straight to the synthesizer. There was a real moment of like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Like there are all these engineers who knew how to do all of this in the 1950s and 60s. There's even a movie about women who work with electric uh, sisters with transistors. Um, Anyway, all this stuff. I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I have just busted my ass for two decades to make circuits do something that people have known how to do for like 60 or 70 years. Oh, well. (laughs) 
but at the same time, you are a process artist, yes. right? You're very much. Yes. And so, I mean, I've been told, I remember, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, improvisation is what I do. And there's, you know, a healthy group of dancers in the world who improvise and that's what we do. But I remember t- trying to tell an artistic director who was kind of putting together a show that my performance would be improvised. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. We did that in the 60s. You don't need to do that anymore. I was like, wait a second. Let me let me discover it for myself and add what I'm going to add to right. that field. Right. And it's energetic and it's it's an awareness of a circuit as nature, as human and that's what you've added to it in addition to the bird sound, right? It's your re- relationship to that process. 100%. And it's also such a good reminder as creatives that throw your wisdom out the window in situations where you're going to make yourself or others small. Seriously. It's like, you know, the people who come along and say, oh, painting is dead. Are you kidding me? It's like almost as soon as someone says that there's some genius painter who creates an image unlike we've ever seen before. So if you come along and say, I want to improvise, I mean, to have somebody say, oh, no, that's boring. We did that in the 60s. Like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, We really should not use our wisdom to make each other small. And you know what? I didn't listen, but I just wasn't in that showcase, but I didn't listen. (laughs) That's good. That's good. You shouldn't listen. I have one more question. It's been an hour. We've been talking. This has been amazing. If you've got anything else that you could share, any piece of advice to creatives who, like you said, are going into schools and not finding what they are after, not finding that kind of support and maybe don't want to continue going forward with their, with their art. I have learned that to make an artistic career. And I mean, like to keep going, especially through your mid-career years, no one can make your career happen except for you. You have to really want to do it. You have to believe that it's your gift. You have to believe that it's the way that you will contribute to the world You have to look at your creative practice as being in service to humanity and to recognize that you're not doing it for anything other than the joy of living and creating and expressing and giving. I know that when I was a younger artist, getting attention was just so much easier. It was so much easier for me to get grants and attention and accolades since, you know, I'm 50 years old. So, you know, it's been a while since I've been a mid-career artist and it's, it's been a real struggle. And I have spent some of my career in the doldrums and in a victim mentality, which is how I learned that it doesn't work. No one cares. All you're doing is hurting yourself. No one's going to come along and rescue you. Find your routine, find your self-care, get real clear about why you're doing it and then do it. Artistic careers are made by relationships and family and grit and ingenuity and reinvention and moving and sacrifice and taking weird jobs and oh my gosh, all of it, right? You just keep going, but find your dimension in that process. The race to the finish line or the catastrophizing when you're ignored, don't waste your time on it. 
because it really is a waste of time. And the only person who suffers is you because the rest of the world is more than happy to move on and gobble up somebody else's content. Find your heart center, find your self-care regimen, find your true friends and just keep reinventing yourself. If you have a period where you make a lot of money and you get a lot of accolades, be happy for it, but don't rest on your laurels. It comes and goes. And at the end of the day, there's no destination. It's a lifelong process of of becoming. And that's where the art is. The art is the life and the giving. There can be no art without the giving. Yeah, that's really important to remember, especially right now where our world is so much about consumerism and getting, getting, getting. I mean, do you want to be around that energy? No. Yeah, well, nobody else does either. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. we got to like, just, you know, turn the paradigm on its end. It's like a light switch. If it all went off on our heads, like, oh my gosh, nobody wants to be around this selfish, like needy, takey, consuming energy. Nobody, none of us do. So you just flip the switch. Like, wow. If we all just started like giving, boy, Hmm. game changer. It would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? (laughs) That's amazing. We're going to end it right there because that is such a great takeaway. I love it. And I'm going to put all of your information, your links, the link to your website and anything else that you want in the show notes so that our listeners can look at your work and experience your work and experience how you write about your work, which is also really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wow. For me, this conversation can be best described by one of those mind blown emojis. My takeaways. Number one, build your own path. When you encounter educational programs or systems that aren't giving you the kind of education you are looking for, build your own program. Believe that there is a way for you to make your art. Number two, Sometimes other people see something in you that you yourself can't see. Trust it. Number three, circuits are a concept everyone can own. The circuit is merely an instrument through which energy flows. Therefore, our bodies are living circuits. Number four, the flow of energy within the body is scientifically studied and proven, but practices that engage with this energy intuitively are often left out of the conversation because the scientific process doesn't really leave room for other ways of knowing. This often leads people to consider alternative practices as woo-woo, when in reality, they are working with a system that is proven through science. Number five, it is the flaws that make artwork beautiful and deeply human. Number six, it is in the lower chakras that the human aura finds its power. Tech and AI can't replicate the beauty of humility and grief that humans are masters of. Number seven, when we make our artwork, it's not the specific move or brushstroke that we are trying to convey. It is an experience of presence and of energy. Number eight, the process of discovery is as valuable to the art as the artwork itself. Number nine, No one can make your career happen except you. You have to know that your artistic work is your contribution to the world. And number 10, 
There is no destination. It's a lifelong process of becoming. And that's where the art is. Art is the life. Thank you to Kelly Heaton for sharing her passion and thoughtfulness with us. If you are in Brooklyn, please go see her work as fast as you can and go follow her on Instagram at Kelly underscore Heaton. And please visit her website, www.kellyheatonstudio.com, where you can find photos and videos of her work alongside detailed commentary about her work and her creative process. Thank you for listening. This is such a pleasure for me to do, and I'm thrilled that so many of you are enjoying this podcast as well. I will see you soon. And in the meantime, go see performance or go get creative yourself and have a great, great week.